Okay, so welcome back. And the um, I'm going to talk a bit now about the other form of wise understanding or wise view, which is the view of the Four Noble Truths. So much of the, just to make kind of a transition, much of the learning along the path is about how things work in this body, in this mind, in this world, right? Is that, um, you, know, you don't need to believe this, but I'll just offer it as a premise, is that um, much of the suffering in our own life has come because we didn't really understand how things are and how they relate. You know, that's um, to be to be tested, but... I think we started to see that from the stories that we heard and told in the first part is that there's a lot, a lot going on here that we may not be tuned into. So the teaching called the Four Noble Truths is something that we'll discover through practice. Um, but it, it may be interesting to know, since that's, also, that's another phrase that has some words in it that like um, noble and truth, might sound unusual to us. Let me tell a little bit about the grammar. The, um, the word that's translated as noble truth, which is aria satcha, aria being noble and satcha is truth. Um, the grammar of it actually means more like the truths of those who are noble or the truths of the noble ones. So it's not that the truths themselves are noble, or that there's something important about these being truths that you need to know and memorize and believe. It's more like people who have learned something about how practice works and have learned something about this, gotten a little bit more skillful at this cause and effect thing. Um, they understand that things work in a certain way. And that's what these four noble truths describe. So in particular, um, there's an understanding about how suffering works. Um, the Pali word, this is the translation of the Pali word dukkha. You may have heard dukkha, and you'll see it certainly in the readings, D-U-K-K-H-A. Um, dukkha doesn't have a great translation into English. It doesn't have a single word, so this is another one of those words that we need to explore. The most common choice is suffering because it's what we want to uh, end <laughs> and who doesn't want to end suffering in their life and in the world. Um, but it's not a great translation because um, there are other aspects. Suffering may be a little bit too narrow. I mean, it also includes things like stress. It also includes um, the tendency of our mind to struggle with experience. So if I say to all of you, how many of you think that you're suffering Probably some of you would say yes, and some of you might say, well, on the grand scale, maybe not too bad. Um, but if I say, how many of you would like to reduce struggle? I bet every one of you <laughs> would like to struggle a little bit less with your life. And that's, um, that's a lot of what's pointed to here. It's pointed down to even very subtle levels of the way that we're misperceiving and therefore creating some stress, some offness. That's my, my word for the finer detail of it. Yeah, so um, it turns out that suffering, this word dukkha, um, follows the same pattern as these other things. It has a cause. It has conditions. And therefore, if those are removed, 
the suffering doesn't happen. That's the whole secret. <laughs> I just told it to you, which is that, I know it doesn't help yet, um, which is that suffering itself is caused. It's also subject to cause and effect. And if we knew what the causes and conditions for that struggle, suffering, conflict were, and we were to remove those, it wouldn't happen. It just wouldn't happen. And that's, that's the path. That's actually the, the secret. Um, there isn't a, some different world that's heavenly and only has pleasure and uh, nothing ever goes wrong. It's actually that we're going to remove the ways in which the world, that the real world that is, is triggering us. Um, so we start to get a sense of what the task is. So these four noble truths, or the truths of the noble ones, say this. Number one, there is dukkha. Does anybody doubt this? Sometimes this is translated as life is suffering. Terrible translation. It's not true at all. Um, so it says, actually, there is dukkha. So in this world, there is suffering. There is stress. There is dissatisfaction. There is unsatisfactoriness. Um, clear enough. And I've always appreciated this, the bluntness of this, is that it starts with the problem. <laughs> it starts by saying, by acknowledging, it's not quite perfect in my perception. <laughs> Does anybody not have that perception? And so there's something very honest about this. Now, luckily, it doesn't stop there. It goes on. Um, but it says, it starts by acknowledging that there's some difficulty here. It's not easy to be human. And so the second noble truth um, is often stated as the cause of suffering is clinging or craving. You might read that in the books. I don't think this is a great translation either because the word um, that's translated as cause doesn't really mean cause. It means more like arising. So a better translation might be something like suffering arises when there is craving or clinging. So it's telling us what that cause is. The word is tanha, which actually means thirst. It's usually translated as craving. Um, I added on clinging, which is a, a different word, upadana, but we, we will say at times that clinging is also the cause of or the cause or the arising of suffering. So suffering isn't just something that comes out of the blue or that has no cause or that is delivered to you by a malicious deity or that is random or anything. Uh, you might check. These are views, by the way, <laughs> about what the cause of suffering is. So the premise, the view we're asked to consider is that the cause of suffering is somehow uh, something in our, our own system that's craving, which is not just simple desire, it's that desire that comes with obsession, with, um, um, yeah, that kind of sense of um, neediness with it, or clinging, mine, <laughs> or don't go away, don't change, don't stop. Do you feel this pattern in your mind also? So those are the ones that are said to be to arise along. When dukkha arises, it's because one of those is there. We may not see it. We may not know where it is. We may not be able to let go of it. But that it's the premise is that's what's going on. Um, the analogy in, uh, 
ancient, if you're interested in ancient Indian um, imagery, is that of a fire, um, which is that they understood that fire happens because the fire clings to the fuel. And it kind of looks like that, right? It's got that kind of, you know, like I'll think of a log fire. So that their idea was that the fire is clinging to the, to its fuel in the way that we cling to objects of desire, things that we want or people that we want, or this also includes pushing away things that we hate. And we're grabbing those as fuel and generating then this suffering. So it's a visceral image. See if it works for you. Luckily, um, there are two other noble truths besides suffering and its arising. There's also, the third one says, there is the cessation of suffering. So this goes with the first, there is suffering or there is dukkha. There is the cessation of dukkha. So we come to understand this better and better through practice. There is a cessation. There is actually times when there isn't this suffering. And at this exact moment, you may, for example, not be feeling, and we talked about greed, hatred, and delusion as the three things that are really there when we're doing unskillful, harmful things. At this moment, you can check in your mind, do you feel an enormous amount of greed? It's unlikely in the conditions that you're in sitting here. So you can feel the freedom at this moment from that grasping greed that we sometimes feel. At this moment, are you overcome with hatred? Probably not. You could prompt it in your mind, but you don't have to. At this moment, it's probably okay. So feel the freedom, feel the cessation. There is no hatred present in this mind. Feels pretty good. And at this moment, there's likely some delusion in all of us. <laughs> but you can feel that at least at this moment, you can know, you can know some things for sure. Um, and that's not an abstract knowing. Things you can know for sure, for example, is what your butt feels like on the chair. That feeling is not wrong. You can feel that. It's absolutely true. You can feel what your hands feel like at this moment. You can feel like what the sense of the room feels like. You just open to that. You just know it. So that's undiluted knowing. It's direct. Doesn't have any ideas added to it. So there is, there is non-suffering, non-dukkha. And you can see that, of course, what changes that is when we start making it into something, we start taking it personally, like Laura said earlier. Yeah, so these are not really obscure. And then the, the fourth noble truth is the truth of the way. There is a way leading to the cessation of suffering. So we can stop struggling with our life. Now that way may take a lot of patience, um, but there is a way. And what we're offered is the Eightfold Path as the, as the way. So let's unpack some of this a little bit. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. When you have mindfulness, when you have enough courage to go back to yourself and embrace the suffering in you, you learn a lot. 
By doing so, you transform your suffering. If you're always trying to run away from your suffering, you have no chance to do that. That is why the Buddha, Buddha told us to recognize the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, and to look deeply in order to discover the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. That is the only way that the fourth noble truth, the path to transform suffering into happiness, can reveal itself. So we have to emphasize the role of suffering. If we're afraid of suffering, we have no chance. It's true. It's actually very monumental. Uh, we may not realize how monumental it is to, to turn toward suffering instead of away from it. It's actually a fundamentally different movement, right? And that makes all the difference. Um, it may be a process where we sort of slowly turn toward it and then, you know, get a feel for it. But um, it's, a, it's a 180 difference, black and white difference between turning toward it and just running away from it or shutting it out or denying it or something else. So first of all, congratulations that everybody got into this room and into this program where um, we take that as the basis. Don't worry, we get to do all the noble truths, not just the suffering, but we do have to start with that. And I just want to really acknowledge that it's um, courageous. That's what Thich Nhat Hanh says. So what is this, this dukkha um, thing? So the Buddha does offer a definition of dukkha. It's said in many places in the sutta. Here's one rendering. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. So that pretty much sums it up. Um, in some ways, although, you know, there are other, we can check, you know, if we're suffering at some time, is one of these things going on? And there's some subtlety to them, right? Um, like, does birth mean really just the time when our body came into the world? Or does it mean the time when we took birth as a certain identity, for example? We decided that I am X right there. <laughs> We've created a box of some kind. So we can start to explore a little bit what these terms mean. Andrew Olensky, um, I think, says it quite eloquently. He says, conventional strategies for human happiness entail various ways of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. The problem is that pleasure is not ultimately sustainable and pain is not avoidable. The shortcomings of our usual approaches is that they treat the symptoms rather than addressing the underlying causes of the predicament, right? Does anybody feel like treating the symptoms for a few decades hasn't really worked? <laughs> yeah. So there's, right? So we can start to maybe get a little deeper look at this. Um, so the fact is that, you know, life is a little unsatisfactory. It's a little hard to, I, I sum this up as it's hard to get everything right and keep it that way. And how much effort do we spend trying to get everything right and then trying to keep it that way if we even succeed at one moment? But, you know, we know how it is. We finally get our house in order and then something goes wrong at work or we finally feel like we have that in order, but then, you know, we have a health challenge to deal with. 
and then we have to renew our driver's license and you know there's always something right and then the toilets don't work on top of that <laughs> so you know it's like and we have somehow and so i know we have to deal with these things it's not like you're going to not do your life but um if the attitude behind that and the understanding is i've got to get it all together and get it right and keep it that way that's a view actually that's one of those views we may not be seeing in ourselves and what if instead it was at each moment i'm not going to struggle that's using the view of cause and effect first of all and also the view of the four noble truths so you see the how to have different views and approach the same life situation and it's going to have different results so if we live in this ordinary mode of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain we will feel a constant sense of lack of being unfulfilled of being not quite there of needing something or just off yeah it's just how it is. If that's our view, then, then that's going to be the result of it. So, you know, even in even in high option cultures like ours, and we're a pretty high option culture for most of us, uh, and things are basically well, we still create all kinds of stuff about this lack of fulfillment. I found this wonderful quote from Ajahn Suchito, whom I love. Um, so here we go. Are you, are you sure you're doing the right thing in your life? Maybe you're missing out on a really great opportunity somewhere else. Then these multiple options become a strain. Can you develop shamanism, play classical guitar, study ecology and cybernetics, have a successful and fulfilling relationship with your partner, your parents and relatives, and your children, come to a mature understanding of the political arena, grow your own organic food, and hold down a suitable job with the right kinds of people for the right ends all at the same time. <laughs> but if any of these go wrong or if you miss out on a really fulfilling experience, you're likely to feel disappointed or personally to blame. So cram it in and hold on tight. <laughs> he says it well, doesn't he? <laughs> right? So there's a better option, right? <laughs> is that we can, you know, we can look at our own experience and discover how to live more peacefully. Um, you know, it's, it's not just about the suffering, it's about the end of suffering also, of course. The Buddha was very clear that he taught suffering and the end of suffering. So, you know, how do we begin to work with these four noble truths? You know, what does it mean to kind of um, incorporate those into our lives? It turns out that each one of them has a task associated with it. So um, the, for the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, is that dukkha is to be understood. So that's the task that goes with it. And this is this act of turning toward it and opening to it and really getting a feel for what it is. Um, it's said that it's not that we, I mean, we don't really need to understand that there's dukkha. You just open the newspaper, right? But we might not know what it is for us, and we might not know what it is at the deeper levels. Um, so we get a better and better understanding of what, what that movement of the mind really is that creates that, uh, that hook. Um, and that, uh, that can go on for a lot of layers of depth. And then the task for the second noble truth of the cause or the origin or the arising of suffering is that the, the cause of suffering is to be abandoned. So we should 
or let go. So we should let go of that cause. We should not do that cause so that the suffering doesn't come about. And then the task for the third truth, the cessation of dukkha, is that it is to be realized. And in some ways it's realized like, aha, I got it. But realize also means make real, manifest. And um, it's understood that the we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live these truths. So um, what would it mean to live in a way that there was this cessation present? So this is a, yeah, this is a kind of a long-term task or to be realized moment by moment also. But the end of suffering is to be realized. And then the path, the fourth truth, the path to the end of dukkha is to be cultivated or developed. So we're to actually do these things. So when we begin to orient our life around these four tasks, uh, then we're practicing wise view. That's the practice of wise view. So we've decided that you know we have some conviction in cause and effect, and that that's going to be turned toward understanding how to live in the best way possible, how to live without struggle, without conflict, without tanha, or anxiety, or anger, or lust, or envy, or whatever our favorite things are, our favorite habits. habits. It is possible. It's possible to, to orient this way. So the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth noble truth, is a comprehensive way of bringing the Buddhist practice into our whole life. We'll find as we go through it that it touches into um, our actions in the world, our mental stance and our intentions, and also the way that we practice meditation. That's an important element of it also. So we, we choose this path because we have a sense that it will work for us. Um, that's really the only reason. <laughs> it's an internal sense. It's not required. It's not demanded. It's not the condition for coming in that door. But we choose it because we think in some way it might work for us. And that's what we're going to test out and explore. So then once we've made that choice, then we have to cultivate it and, and see, just like we cultivate our garden and we see what can come of it. So over the eight, next eight months, we get to explore each of these steps in our own life, um, and that will lay a good foundation in each one. I don't know that we're going to like completely finish the Eightfold Path for each of us in, the, um, in these eight months, but it sort of doesn't matter. It's an iterative process where um, we do each one at the level that we can, at the time and speed and conditions that we have now and um, and then we'll find that whatever we've cultivated it's kind of like when you're reading a book and you put in the bookmark you know whatever you did when you come back it'll be there and uh, you'll get to the next level eventually and we'll just go through I mean I don't know that a month is exactly the right time for each one but it's a good good chunk of time so um, you hopefully you won't feel rushed and just take each one as they come and we'll see So all along the way, we'll experience, I hope, a gradual cessation of dukkha 
and that there's a way with engaging with each one of these that will um, come to understand something that can lessen the stress or the struggle that we are feeling in some aspect of it. I don't, I won't go so far as to say it's a totally linear path. Like there are moments where it seems like the dukkha is increasing because we've gotten to some new layer, but the general trend is that it's going down. <laughs> so we'll see that over, over time. There is a sutta where the Buddha is very clear. He says, right view is the forerunner of all the other ones. So there's a reason why it's first. We have to orient ourselves somehow. If you're going to walk, you have to be facing in some direction before you start walking. And right view is the direction that you're facing. And then you go. So it does make a difference. Of course, you can correct later. But probably good if we're going at least generally in the right direction. <laughs> so I want to finish with this um, quote about the path. Just as the river Ganges slants, slopes, and inclines toward the east, so too a person who develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path slants, slopes, and inclines toward Nibbana. So this is like that, almost like the shadow image, the river image, is that, you know, when you get in the river, it's going in some direction. It slants, slopes, and, and inclines. And so there's a way in which this path has a quality of flowing down toward freedom. And it's a matter of getting ourselves into the stream and getting attuned to it. But that there's, um, there's not a huge amount of work and cultivation and you know climbing the mountain and <laughs> there may be moments that feel like that but basically it's meant to be a positive image of the the yeah the direction that you set has a certain momentum to it okay so let's um Let's do some more uh, small group discussion and have a chance to talk about a couple questions that are related to the now to the Four Noble Truths. And when you get into groups, um, two instructions. One is that you might want to be with people who are different than you had before, just to meet some other people. And also, um, it, ha it happens that several of you are here who have G as your mentor and you're in his group. Um, he has a, a group. And so he had a good idea, which was that it might be nice for you guys to meet each other. So if you're in G's group, would you please organize um, uh, over where, Laura, where um, Heidi, is it? Heather. Heather is because I saw you first and I know you're in his group. So... Um, yeah, if you guys could go over that, we will see whether you're one or two groups. Let's try to get into groups of three if we can. It may not be a perfect number, but let's try that. Okay, so the first question is, um, what is compelling to you about dukkha and wise view? You know, when you think of those qualities, and I just talked about both of those, what felt kind of compelling or felt interesting to you about dukkha and wise view? And again, we'll just let each person um, speak for a couple of minutes and I'll ring the bell. So this time the person with the longest hair can start. 
Okay, so the the next item for exploration is um, how might your life be different by wise view? You know, what, yeah, how might your life be different by wise view? And however that, you know, however you interpret that question is fine. It's deliberately a little bit rounded around the edges. So how might your life be different by wise view? So the first person can go ahead. All right, so as before, I wonder if there's any wisdom to share with the larger group. A couple people in my group brought up uh, driving That's a great example. We do carry views into how we approach the tasks that we do, largely, again, invisibly, or at least just habitually, so we don't think about them. So we could drive with the idea of, I need to get there as fast as possible, and if people are in my way, that's their fault. And this has a different effect on us than if we drive, oh, I'm going to see the trees or I'm going to drive in a way that um, is cooperative with the other people on the road. has a different effect on us, right? I don't know about them, but probably them too. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. some effort yeah you know, I mean, it will that's one of the steps of the path so yeah. it's expected yeah you do have to want to I do because the the role of ignorance in our mind not our usual understanding of the word ignorance it means what we're ignoring <laughs> um, tends to tell us not to look in that way and 
So there is an active force in the mind that doesn't want to be awake, actually. And that's part of what we encounter along the path. As soon as you try to invoke the path, you'll see that. And so it's, you know, but that's all just part of the scenery. But you're right. It does, it does require, um, oh, I remember in one of my first interviews with my teacher, I was going on about something and he, um, he stopped me and said, Kim, are you interested in this? <laughs> and I said, yes. <laughs> and so, but that was a moment where he made me say it, right? And so, in a sense, he invited me to say it, and I did. And I realized, oh, right, I am interested in this, actually. I don't need to sit here and argue about these fine points. I actually am interested in doing this. And so, it's good to have that understanding. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for bringing that up, because I think, by the way, almost any comment you make, probably somebody else was thinking the same thing. It's, yeah. Was there more? No, okay, so. thank you. <laughs> Sometimes I get excited about things that people say, and then I go off on things, and I want to make sure I don't do that. Yes? If I may just allude to the, the, one, the, the last reading you did, uh, and it did tie into our conversation, and... Uh, as long as I've been kind of reading the teachings, they talk about, you know, looking, going towards the suffering and looking at the suffering, not running from it. And I, it, and it really crystallized for me where um, I think either in the, in the reading, either it, it mentioned it or it was what I, what I was processing in my head where, you know, if you have a sick patient, you know, you look at the, you look at the cause not in, in, Primarily, yeah, you want to treat so the like disease, not the symptoms. You know the symptoms are, yeah, but we, it, so that's how I interpret you know, look at the cause, mm -hmm. and that made it, you know, looking at the suffering, it, it made it more inviting to me by equating it. That. So I thought that was pretty, it was just a nice moment. That's beautiful, actually, and that the. Um, the teachings, maybe you've run across this, um, do use a medical metaphor also. I didn't happen to give it today, but since you brought it up, it's now in the room. It's great. Is that, you know, the disease is dukkha and that there is a, um, a cause for it. And then there's a cure and we can take the cure by doing the uh, Eightfold Path. So thank you. Yeah. Say earlier, but what I'm realizing now is that I think for me, I so much want to. I think I can come up with the right thing in my mind and, and skip the suffering. Mm -hmm. Well, because, you know, especially having done this for a while now, I know lots of things, you know, about why people do what they do or I do what I do. And I have developed some compassion around that at times. But I still want to skip the ouch yeah so straight to the well they did that because they're you know caught in delusion or they're they're tired or you know instead of that was painful yeah it's i hear that yeah i don't it's like in a way my avoidance has gotten even more sophisticated <laughs> 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 you know the mind is kind of wily <laughs> And the, um, I think this, this idea of understanding dukkha um, has multiple levels to it, maybe. And um, 
There is the cognitive understanding or a story that we would tell they're tired or they're deluded or whatever it is, or I'm tired or I'm deluded. <laughs> That's also a, a useful story sometimes. Um, and then um, we slowly, maybe like dipping our foot into the water, we begin to um, have what would be a more direct understanding. Like we understand that we're suffering because we feel a contraction in our heart, for example. Or I, I understand, I have an understanding of dukkha because um, when I'm about to say something, I feel a tightening in my stomach. And then I say, huh? you know, that that's like a direct experience of dukkha and it's um, and also of the cause, right, the clinging. And so um, we slowly get more refined about that. And we find that I've found at least that the the degree to which I can have that more visceral perception going on and maybe uh, compared to a story or a words, um, it's first of all more satisfying practice and more accurate. Um, and also, um, well, maybe just those two, more, more satisfying and also more accurate over time. Yeah. But it's a process to dip our foot into that and be willing to do that. Slowly, slowly. Yeah, Evelyn. I mean, I found that the capacity to, my trust in my own capacity to extend compassion to both myself and other people makes me much, much more willing to turn toward mm-hmm. um, really, really difficult things. And that yeah. That, 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 that that's the ultimate safety net in the end. And so, I don't know. You're pointing toward the idea of refuge, you know, what is it that we feel to be reliable? You know, what helps us know that we can do this path? And for you, you found a certain capacity and compassion to be uh, useful. Um, There are many, many refuges that people choose. Of course, we've already chosen refuges. It's not like you don't have them. Most people think, oh, I don't know, you know, but you're relying on something. Um, Most people rely on their job, their status, their body, their relationships as being their way of understanding who they are and what's reliable in the world. But we, the ouches in our life are when those things aren't reliable because they're actually not, those particular things are not very reliable, even though they're a big part of our life. And so um, we're invited, this isn't really a talk about refuge, but we're invited to find something maybe more reliable, um, uh, things that are offered are our awareness, you know, our, our mindfulness, our ability to, to just be present. That's an aspect of the Buddha. Um, the teachings, so teachings that come to mind because you've read them, or aspects of the path like compassion. These are part of the refuge of the Dharma. And also um, people who are also walking the path. So people who have some of that same understanding or that's those same goals that we do. So Sangha, um, and sometimes Sangha is more specified to be uh, people who have had some understanding along the path, um, who are providing a certain um, stability and reliability. So teachers and other folks. So, um, these refuges are, again, they're not things to believe in. So maybe this is the time to talk about them while we're being sure that we don't have to believe in things. But they're offered as options that are more reliable. 
than our usual things, which usually turn out to be a little wobbly. And then over time, like anything else, those deepen and refine. Um, but it, it might be an interesting reflection, an additional reflection besides the one that you'll get in your email tomorrow, um, is what do you consider reliable? And you know, what are you using as a basis for walking this path? Something to talk about with your mentor also. Mm-hmm. We're into the, just the last few minutes. If anybody has any additional questions. Yeah, Kristen. Um, can you, would you mind repeating the second task that is related to the second? It's, the cause of suffering is to be abandoned or let go. Yeah. And the process for doing that is the fourth truth. We can't let go just as an act of will, most of us, most of the time. So the process for doing the second noble truth is to walk the path, and that will lead to the letting go. Yeah. But we, sh- we need to understand that the clinging is the problem and that somehow that has to be let go. If we think the clinging is fine, <laughs> um, it won't lead to the same result. Yeah. If we're, and we'll just, I said that a little bit tantalizingly because we are actually supporting our clinging in some way. And there are things that we um, would like to let go of and we know that we're clinging and that, you know, that's fine. But then there are things that are going to be a little more challenging. We only have to let go of the clinging, remember. We don't have to let go of like anything that we care about or, you know, all of our standards and values. We only let go of the cause of suffering. So um, don't let go of the cause of happiness, please. <laughs> right? So part of the path is learning how to let, all these are part of wisdom, right? So we have to learn how also to let go wisely. Um, it wouldn't be wise for somebody who is just at the very first stages of recovery to say, well, I'm supposed to let go of my preference for needing to be in a particular place. It's okay for me to go to a bar. I should be able to just be mindful there. I don't think that's very wise, you know, right at the very beginning. So, or sometimes people will say, well, the only, the only way to, to really walk this path is I'm going to quit my job and get a divorce and like move to the monastery tomorrow. For some people that's wise, but for some people that's not so wise. (laughs) And so, you know, um, wise letting go um, so that we're not causing harm through doing it. But usually if we trust the path, um, there's a way in which things kind of let go like, like leaves drop off a tree. You know, it's like you don't have to go rip all the leaves off the trees. Fall. You can watch them. They're falling. <laughs> and we, we do the practice of the path, and that cultivates a, a, a withering away of the things that are causing suffering, and then they just drop off at some point. Sometimes we need a little more effort, like Justin was talking about, but sometimes not. So that's part of the wisdom also is how to balance the active and the passive. Does that help? Yeah. Okay, well, the idea is that you're now launched. (laughs) You have some idea about Wise View, and you have lots of reading materials, and you'll start getting reflections. They're weekly, so you'll get, you know, just one each week, and you'll meet with your mentor at some point this month, and we'll be back on November 11th for wise intention.
Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.